following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. We're uh, now in the third week of this new series in the book of Deuteronomy. It's called the Second Law. Anybody remember why it's called the Second Law? Because Deutero means second and namos means law in Greek, and you, you push those words together and it says Deuteronomy and it's the Second Law. It's the second giving of the law, and I'll explain what that means in a, in a minute. We started off by talking about remembering and forgetting. Uh, and last week we talked about um, idolatry, worshiping other gods. And um, we're doing this uh, as a way of trying to go deeper in our understanding of Scripture. The, the theme for this ministry year is deep waters. And part of um, spiritual formation is studying the Scriptures. And we're trying to study them in a way where we begin to get a a bigger, wider picture of what is going on in the Bible. And uh, by the way, if that's not coming across, <laughs> you should give me that feedback because that's what we want to happen here. Um, we're, we're studying specific texts, but we want it to fit into the big picture of God's story in the world. And of course, we want that to make some difference in our own life as well. And so this is the, uh, the point of deep waters. One of the points we, we think of spiritual formation in three movements, scripture, prayer, and service, and those are kind of all turning around each other and feeding into each other all the time. Um, and today, uh, the sermon is entitled Egypt and Israel. If you know the story uh, of God's people, you know that Israel and Egypt had a, uh, a certain type of relationship. Maybe you only know it from um, the movie The Prince of Egypt, and that's, is that the Disney movie? The Prince of Egypt? I actually never saw it, but I've heard it's, it's a, a halfway decent way to learn some of the story here. So if you haven't seen it, you want a little refresher that doesn't involve reading uh, 35 chapters of Deuteronomy or Exodus, um, <clears throat> you could watch the movie. But I would recommend studying the scriptures, not just the, uh, the animated version. Um, <clears throat> the meaning of this title, it has kind of a double meaning. And uh, I hope that will become clear as we go through it. Um, I pray that it does, because I'm not totally sure, to be perfectly honest with you, but let's see what we can do, okay? Um, In order to get there, I want to tell you more of the story. So we're going to kind of um, do the drone thing, right? We're going to get a little bit higher and look down, rather than looking at this specific moment with Moses and the Israelites on the cusp of the promised land where he's giving them the law for a second time. We're going to kind of fade back a little bit and try to look at the big picture of what's going on, and I hope that will be helpful and make this point. Let's see what happens. So the beginning of the story of uh, God's people, you know, let's, uh, let's assume that creation has already happened and all that kind of big swirling uh, mythic creation stuff has, has happened. We're, we're to the point where, where we start to see what, what might more properly be uh, said is kind of the history of God's people, right? And God f- finds this nomadic person called Abraham and says to him, um, Go. Uh, walk is actually a more literal translation of what the Hebrew word says there. And where does he tell Abraham to go? He doesn't tell him where to go. He says, leave the land of your fathers and go to the place that I will show you. Go to the land that I will show you. And if you will demonstrate your faith in this way, by getting up and going, by the way, that's the way we demonstrate our faith. We don't demonstrate our faith by being able to check off a bunch of uh, Um, bullets on a list of intellectual 
statements about God. We demonstrate our faith by walking, by trusting enough to go when God says to go. And Abraham does. And uh, God says, because you've shown this faith in me, I will make your family great. I will make your uh, nation great. Again, as I mentioned last week, family and nation are kind of used interchangeably. Uh, and it's, um, it's, I think, usually the same Hebrew word that's translated in different ways. Uh, and if you think of how Eastern, ancient Near Eastern culture developed just based on your own study of history in middle school or whatever, um, and if you don't know what that is, Mike can help you here, <laughs> uh, right? Sure. Um, this is what happens. Families become nations, right? And God says to Abraham, I will make your family great in all of the earth, and uh, your, your family will be as numerous as the stars in the heaven. Look up at the sky, now, when we look at the sky in Rochester, we see seven or eight stars, depending on how many clouds there are. Uh, but <laughs> without any buildings, Abraham could look up and see. Have you ever been in, in a field way far away from any cities and looked up on a clear night and seen the stars? What a remarkable thing for Abraham to see and to know this is God's promise, that you will be made as numerous as these stars. Um, and he says to him, I will bless those who bless you, and those who curse you I will curse. This is part of the promise that God makes to Abraham. Uh, Now, Abraham and his wife Sarah can't have children, but they do miraculously have children, and Abraham has Isaac, and Isaac uh, is the father of Jacob. And Jacob has how many sons? Uh, Twelve. Twelve sons. This is um, the musical, Jacob and the Technicolor, Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat, right? Andrew Lloyd Webber? No? Believe me, if I hadn't had a very weird experience of, of, for some reason, running sound for that musical several years ago, I would know nothing about it. <laughs> um, uh, but Joseph uh, is the, the, the son that is most beloved by his father, Jacob, and of course all of his other brothers hate him as a result. And uh, so they, they plot to kill him, they don't kill him, they eventually get sold into slavery. And he's carried away to Egypt. We're finally to Egypt. Remember Egypt? a sermon about Egypt. Um, and so Joseph is in Egypt, and he finds that he's able to uh, interpret dreams. Right? He has this kind of mystic uh, quality to him. And he ends up interpreting dreams for the king of Egypt, the pharaoh. Right? And so he rises in the court of the pharaoh, in, in the pharaoh's favor. And one of the dreams that he interprets is, the, uh, is about how there's, there's going to be seven years of plenty and then seven years of famine. So he tells the Pharaoh, this is what the dream means, and so you should, you should store up all the grains and all the food uh, during the years of plenty so that you can make it through the years of famine. And sure enough, that comes true. And there's seven years of plenty, and the Egyptians stockpile all of this food, and then the famine hits, and they're okay, but all the people around them are not okay because they didn't have the dream or if they did, they didn't have Joseph. And so they didn't know the famine was coming and they didn't store up their food. Right. <clears throat> and so uh, people from miles around come to Egypt to beg for mercy and to beg for, for food. There's so much extra that the Egyptians can do this. And guess who comes to Egypt and ends up sitting before Joseph pleading for food but his brothers? The, um, the sons of Abraham, grandsons, great-grandsons, but they're the family that God has promised to make great, and they're on the brink of disaster because they have no food. So they come to Egypt, and they are reunited through, uh, with Joseph, and the, the story goes on from there. Um, <clears throat> but they, they settle in Egypt. 
And for a while, things are good because their brother, their relative, is in good with the king, with the pharaoh. But when the, the pharaoh uh, dies and is replaced by a new one who doesn't have that favorable relationship with Joseph, uh, his people are, are then seen as outsiders in the enemy, and they're actually enslaved by the Egyptians. And then generation after generation after generation after generation of the Israelites, God's uh, blessed family is in slavery in Egypt. And after, I think it's 400 years, God calls Moses to lead his people to freedom at last. To finally get his people out of captivity and to send them off, where? To the land that he promised Abraham. You see how this all kind of fits together now? Some of you know all of this already, but many of you, and probably most of you, don't know the, the completeness of the story, which is why we're doing this. And so the story of the exodus, of the leaving, is the story of uh, Moses leading the people, God's people, the Israelites, the family of Abraham, out of captivity um, and toward the land that's been promised to them. Uh, and so when Moses goes to the Pharaoh and says, the Lord says, Yahweh says, let his people go, Pharaoh kind of taunts God and says, who is the Lord, who is Yahweh, that I should heed him and let Israel go. I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Um, And so God uh, visits upon the Egyptians a series of ten plagues. And this is what's told in the Prince of Egypt, right? Now, here are the plagues, and I want you to keep these in mind, because this will be part of driving this point home in a little bit. In no particular order. Uh, well, in a particular order, but not in the order that they occur in the story. We have the Nile River, the water of it turning into blood. We have uh, frogs. I mean, one frog is cool. Lots of frogs not. <laughs> lice. Any lice is not cool. Um, Hailstorm, which, which destroys the crops and the animals. There are what's either flies or wild animals. Interestingly, this is one of those linguistic things where it could be either one. Usually it's described as flies. Uh, the livestock is diseased with this pestilence. The Egyptians get painful boils on their skin. There's a period of darkness where they can't see anything for days on end. And then finally, the, the last plague, the one that um, finally makes Pharaoh relent long enough for the people to get out of Egypt, is this, uh, the death of the firstborn son. Very troubling um, part of the story um, and where, the, where, the, where God or the angel of death, it's not quite clear who or how, but comes through and the, the firstborn son in every household is struck dead overnight, except for the households where they, um, they ceremonially slaughter this animal and sprinkle the, the blood on the door frames. And this is, uh, the angel will pass over those houses. And this is where the Jewish holiday of Passover comes from. So, <clears throat> The Israelites uh, take this moment and they escape. Uh, they go across the Red Sea. Moses uh, puts his staff down in the waters part. They go through. And then as the Egyptians and the Pharaoh chase him through, the chariots are consumed by the water when the water comes back in. And they come to the edge of the promised land. They're finally now to the land that God promised he would show Abraham. The, the place, the land flowing with milk and honey, it says, right? And they send in spies and 12 spies, one from each tribe of Israel, one from each son. And uh, all but two of them come back and say, uh, no, this, we'll never be able to conquer these people. They're too big. 
Um, we're not, as I joked last week, the grapes don't look that good anyway. Um, we're, well, let's not do this. And so God says, uh, you faithless people, this whole generation of you is going to die before you get to the promised land. Uh, and so they are sent out into the wilderness and they wander for 40 years. 40 years is usually in the Bible kind of a, a generic, like long time. 40 days, a long time. 40 years, a really long time. That's just kind of how it goes. Um, and they wander and wander, and then they come back to the edge of the promised land. All of the people have died except for Moses and the two spies who trusted in God, Joshua and Caleb. And Moses has been told he's not going to get in at all. Uh, so he's going to die on the edge here. But what he does before the people cross in, as I said last week and the week before, he gathers them all together as a community and he reminds them. That's what the remembering and forgetting thing was about in the first week. He reminds them of the whole story of God, all that has happened. He tells them, your ancestors went down to Egypt 70 persons and now they are as numerous as the stars. He's evoking that promise to Abraham. And so Moses dies and is buried, and they enter the promised land under the leadership of Joshua. Um, Joshua is a military leader, and the book of Joshua is probably one of the most troubling books in the Bible because there's a lot of bloodshed. Uh, they're established in there. I'm going I'm to take us past the book of Deuteronomy here just very briefly, and you'll see why in a second, I hope. Uh, they established their governance by, uh, by judges. The, the judges oversee Israel until... They eventually demand a king. Why do they want a king? Well, because all of their neighbors have kings, and they don't have a king, and they feel like uh, an inferior nation because of it. So in 1 Samuel 8 is this hinge point in the story of Israel where they say, give us a king over us like all of our neighbors have. And God says, it's not going to go well if we do that. And they say, do it anyway. And so he does. And then they have a monarchy, uh, and they have uh, three kings that are kind of like okay, and then lots and lots of kings that are really bad. And eventually the kingdom is divided into the north and the south. And the prophets of Israel uh, come during this time and they're, they're railing against all the, all the rebellion that they see in the world around them against God. And, and uh, unlike our modern day prophets, it's almost always turned inward to the religious community, to the, to the people of God saying, you are missing the point. You are out of line. You are not acting in accordance with God's desire or his will, and it's going to be bad for you. Right? Now, our 21st century religious prophetic voices usually turn their back on the community and shout those things out at the world, but that is not the model uh, that we see in the Bible for, for this kind of prophetic preaching. Eventually, uh, the, the, kingdoms, the split kingdoms are conquered, first by the Assyrians and then by the Babylonians. And when the Babylonians come, they destroy the temple that's been built in Jerusalem and they send the people out into exile. Uh, later on, they're able to return to their, to their holy land under the Persian Empire, which is a little bit nicer. Uh, and they rebuild the temple. And so uh, if you've heard uh, the phrase Second Temple Judaism, that's referring to this period of history. And that's where Jesus comes on the scene. Um, by the time Jesus is born, the, the next wave of empire has come through and conquered, and that's who? It's the Romans, right? So Jesus exists, the time of Jesus is, is in the Roman Empire. Right. So, why did I tell you all that? I want to look at Deuteronomy 28. 
Now, this is a long chapter, and I'm not going to read it all. If, you would, if, you're, if you're bored with the sound of my voice and you want something very exciting, you could read Deuteronomy 28, but I must warn you, it's, um, it's quite troubling. <laughs> it's not a fun chapter to read. It's fun for about 10 verses, and then it goes off the rails. Because here's what happens in Deuteronomy 28. This is the point where Moses is reiterating the idea of blessings and cursings. Remember, uh, God said to Abraham, uh, those who bless you I will bless, and those who curse you I will curse. That dichotomy between blessings and curses is present throughout Torah, Torah being the first five books of the Bible, the, the, the main part of the story of God's people. All through it, blessing and curse, blessing and curses, blessings and curses. And Deuteronomy 28 is where that, I mean, that just comes to the forefront in a big way. And it says, if you follow all the things that I've commanded you, if you remember what God wants of you, if you remember that you were blessed to be a blessing to those around you, then you will be blessed. But if you forget all the things, you are going to be cursed, and you're going to be cursed in a big way. Now notice, a few of the promised curses, of the, of the curses that Moses warns them of in particular, see if these sound familiar to you at all. Verse 21, the Lord will make the pestilence, the disease, cling to you. Verse 38, you shall carry much seed into the field, but shall gather little in, for the locust shall consume it. Verse 42, all your trees and the fruit of your ground, the cicada, shall take over. Is this sounding familiar to you at all? What are we hearing evoked here in these warnings? The plagues that were visited against Egypt. Verse 28, here's a couple more. The Lord will afflict you with madness, blindness, and confusion of mind. You shall grope about at noon as blind people grope about in darkness, but you shall be unable to find your way. Now, there's nothing wrong with... um, being blind. This is not saying that there's any kind of uh, problem with that, that blind people are less than sighted people or any of that stuff. It's simply evoking the curse, the plague of darkness in Egypt when the people walked around at noon and they were, it was as if they were blind. Verse 32, your sons and daughters shall be given to another people while you look on. And now, now we're talking about our children. And you can imagine that the Israelites already cued in to the idea of the plagues that were visited upon Pharaoh and the Egyptians are starting to worry about what's coming next. But by the time this chapter is over, it will actually be much worse. Now this is, I will try to describe this in a way that's not as graphic and disturbing as it it really probably is. Because it's not just that the Israelites will lose their children, that their children will die, as happened to the Egyptians' firstborn sons. The warning here is that you are going to be so disoriented, so lost, so hungry, that you will actually cannibalize your own children. So not only will the Israelites suffer some of the same fates as the Egyptians, their enemies, it will actually be much worse. And this is, this is an almost cartoonish picture of how much worse it's going to go for you, the people who should know better if you don't follow the way of the Lord. You think it's bad for your enemies? Wait till you see what happens to you. Now, this business of, of 
Neighbors and enemies is uh, very prevalent in Torah as well, and it's all throughout Deuteronomy. As a matter of fact, I almost titled one of the messages in this series, Neighbors and Enemies. There's always a tension in the books of Torah between loving your neighbors and, on the other hand, not becoming like your neighbors. Do you remember when we talked about holiness earlier? Our modern-day definition of holiness is that, like, I don't do anything bad. And um, at least not the things that you do. That's usually how it's defined, right? My version of holiness, you know, I, growing up in my, my the little subset of the Christian tradition I grew up in was called the holiness tradition. And the reason was because you didn't drink, smoke, or chew, or go out with boys who do, right? <laughs> right? N- none of this stuff, you can't do any of the stuff like the world does, including going to movies or uh, necking. <laughs> Right? Uh, how weird was that? <laughs> Mom, what's necking? I can't wait. <laughs> Have fun, parents, on the way home. Uh, anyway, <clears throat> what holiness actually means is not that you are perfect or that you're better than your neighbors. Holiness means that you are different from your neighbors. Holy means, holiness means that you're different not just for the sake of being different, Right? That's called hipsterism. Holiness is being different for the purpose of, of making the world better. You are set apart for a purpose. You are blessed so that you can bless those around you. Right? And so there's always the expectation that Israel will love its neighbors. As a matter of fact, when Jesus is asked what's the greatest commandment and he starts by quoting Deuteronomy, you shall love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Right? And then the second one is like it, Jesus says. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, that second one is not from Deuteronomy, but it is from Torah. It's actually from the book of Leviticus. How many people read the book of Leviticus uh, just because it's such a blessing to you? (laughs) How many read the book of Leviticus because it's such a wonderful, uh, warm, fuzzy book? (laughs) We don't. If you know anything about the book of Leviticus, you know it's shot through with all kinds of weird rules some of which we follow and expect everybody around us to follow, and some of which we freely ignore, and we come up with all kinds of reasons why that might be. Many of them don't make any sense whatsoever. Love your neighbors as yourself is the expectation of God's people. But you also must not become like them. Don't bow down to their idols. Don't worship their gods. Don't intermarry with them so that, you, so that your uh, cultures are blended much. By the way, one of the things that's not okay in Torah is uh, inappropriate blending of things like different fabrics and stuff like that, right? But it's, it's all based on this idea that you should not become like your neighbors. You are set apart for the purpose of blessing them, but you should not be like them, right? And if you do act the way that they do, you will reap the, the punishment and destruction that they have reaped. That's what's going on in Deuteronomy 28 and elsewhere in this book. So love your neighbors or they will become your enemies. Don't become like your neighbors or they will become your enemies. It's a strange tension. And honestly, reading through the book of Deuteronomy can be difficult, but I think it's a little helpful if you think about this neighbor-enemy kind of dichotomy. Now, in in Torah, these first five books of the Bible, the great neighbor enemy is Egypt. 
whether it's the book of Exodus or the book of Deuteronomy or where else, it's, it's always kind of implicit there. You can see it. In the prophets, remember we talked about the prophets a minute ago, the ones who were railing against the, the corrupt kings of Israel, the enemy, the neighbor enemy, is always Babylon. Right? And that's appropriated in some of the apocalyptic literature. Babylon. The, the neighbor enemy. The neighbor that became an enemy. And in later Jewish writing, extra-biblical Jewish writing, and to uh, maybe a lesser extent, the New Testament, the great neighbor enemy is Rome, which is how you get uh, books of the Bible like Romans and Romans chapter 1. All that neighbor enemy stuff is present there, right? And if you've read Romans 1 or had it shouted at you at one time or another, uh, without that context, you're missing part of the story. So I realize that this has been to some extent, all over the map. And uh, hopefully my preaching is not usually that much all over the map. But I need you to have that bigger picture, right? So when you, when you back up like that, you miss some of the detail. And it can be confusing. And if you're trying to do a detailed analysis, you won't be able to do it with a sermon like this. But what I hope this does do is give you some of the big picture of what's going on and why the language of the uh, Hebrew Bible is the way it is sometimes. But, of course, we have to try to make some application for today. And uh, here's, here's part of what I would say for that. And uh, ultimately, I think you're going to need to, to appropriate this for yourself and make your own type of application. But one thing you need to realize right away, because you will miss so much of the point of the Bible if you don't get this point, which is that the Bible is written from the perspective of the uh, underdog. The Bible's story is the story of the people who are oppressed by the superpower. The Israelites who are oppressed by Egypt. Uh, The kingdoms of Israel who are oppressed and conquered by Assyria and then by Babylon. The Jews in the first century who are oppressed by a corrupt Roman empire. Now, we as 21st century Americans pick up this Bible and try to appropriate its stories for ourselves, but the problem is we are not the tiny uh, little underdog that's, that's being oppressed by the empire, by the superpower. We are the superpower. So the Bible ought to be, uh, in some senses, rather alarming for us because it does not say good things. It does not predict good things for the superpower particularly when it oppresses the underdog or the minority. And we want to read the Bible as if we, America, are Israel. That is not the case. We are Egypt. We are Rome, and we are Babylon. Now, that's not saying, I'm not trying to say that we're we're going around and slaughtering people, that we're this evil nation. Listen, it's not an anti-America screed. This is, this is a way of positioning ourselves in relationship to the text in a way that's, that makes sense and is a little bit more honest. So if you're trying to apply these texts and saying that we are God's... You read these, these verses about being God's chosen nation and you try to apply that to America, I'm sorry, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. which doesn't mean that the Bible has nothing to say to us. It just means that we have to read it 
through the lenses of our, of our being the superpower, right? of our being the, 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 the majority. <clears throat> so what has to happen is actually, a, in a weird sense, a decontextualization before you can contextualize it. Is that, is that too egg-headed to say it that way? You have to kind of un, like, take it all apart <laughs> and put it back together in a different way. And then the second thing I would say, and this is where I'm going to leave it to you to, to take this out into your own worlds and into your own lives, is that we need to think about who our neighbors are. Right? Now, some of us live in neighborhoods and we have literal physical neighbors. That's one way to think about this. How can we love our neighbors without necessarily becoming exactly like them? We can think about that as a church, which, by the way, I think is the appropriate thing to say. Uh, it's not that America is the new Israel, it's that the church is the new Israel. Right? And so uh, we have been, uh, in some sense, chosen by God, blessed by God, so that we can be a blessing to those around us, right? And if we don't uh, respond to that by uh, loving our neighbors without becoming entirely like them, without blurring all the lines, then uh, it won't go well for us any more than it went well for Israel. You see what's happening here? So we ought to be thinking about our physical neighbors and we ought to be thinking about our um, uh, kind of, in a more figurative sense, our, our spiritual neighbors as the church. How can we love our city without becoming like it? What does it even mean to become like it in a, in a, in a bad sense? What does it mean to love in a good sense our city? These are the questions that I think we ought to be wrestling with and this is why studying scripture, one of the movements of spiritual formation, pushes us out into service, one of the other movements of spiritual formation, right? Because if the study of scripture doesn't cause us to go out into the world and make the world better as a result of it, then we have not been studying scripture the right way. Um, and by the way, in between there, I don't know about you, but I'll, I want to pray that we don't screw that all up, which is the third movement of spiritual formation. This is the hope that all these things kind of spin around each other and feed into and out of each other. But when we look at Egypt and Israel, what do we see from our own lives, from our own setting? And how can we uh, carry God's good blessings uh, to our neighbors? How can we love them and r rather than making enemies of them? That's what I want us to be thinking about today. So let's pray together. God, we give you thanks for these old uh, texts, even though they're hard for us to understand sometimes, and we pray that, you, um, that you'd help us to understand them with your Spirit's wisdom, that we'd come to them with humility, not feeling like we know everything about the world or um, about what you want for it, but with an openness to your Spirit's uh, leading and guidance. And um, we pray that we would help to uh, help that we'd be able to understand what our place is and isn't in the world as we look at our lives in light of the context of this ancient Near Eastern story of God's people. Help us to be, as the church, um, the recipients of your blessings so that we can bless those around us. And help us to trust in you and show faith in you such that we would actually move and walk as our spiritual ancestor Abraham did. 
We pray that all these things would be made true and real for us in the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. I want to invite you now to come to the table of the Lord, um, <clears throat> doing the work of the life of faith drains your soul, and this is the food for your souls. Um, Come and remember Christ's sacrifice made for you and for the world, and receive it into your own bodies as um, a source of spiritual energy, the the means of grace, as my pal John Wesley used to say. Um, He's not actually my pal. He died in the 18th century, I think. (laughs) There'll be a member of the prayer team here uh, to pray with you in person if that's what you'd like to uh, have happen right now. Uh, And our table, by the way, is open. It's an open table, which means that you don't have to be a member here uh, or have signed anything or anything like that to come and receive um, what God offers you here. You simply have to be trusting in Jesus uh, enough to come and want want more of him. And so we're going to keep singing together. And uh, the table is open. You can come when you're ready. Uh, But if you'd like to sit and think and observe, that's entirely okay too. As always, I just encourage you to respond to the Holy Spirit in whatever way would be appropriate for you. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.